Section 3 of Modern Russian Literature by D.S. Mirsky. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 3. Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. It is customary to couple these two names together, and the custom is, on the whole, justified. The two are comparable not only in size, they were head and shoulders above the rest of their contemporaries, but also in kind. They were both masters of the psychological novel. They were both passionately interested in the essential problems of life, death, and God, and both endeavored to create a system of moral and social philosophy on a religious foundation. For the literary historian, they are of greater interest as novelists than as moralists. But even apart from their imaginative work, they were both, though in an unequal degree, great writers, and Tolstoy the greatest master of non-narrative Russian prose. Though all novelists have to do with the feelings and emotions of their characters, the peculiarity of the psychological novelist is that his method of dealing with them is intellectual, the method of direct description and analysis, and introspective. He is assumed to know everything that is going on inside them. The ordinary type of novelist, like Scott or Dickens, is concerned with the feelings of his heroes only insofar as they express themselves in speech or action, while the poetical novelist, like Turgenev or Chekhov, conveys them by the indirect way of sympathetic suggestion. Tolstoy's method is purely analytical. Dostoevsky's is purely analytical only in monologues, like memoirs from the underground. In his big novels, it is largely dramatic, the speeches being the main means of revealing their inner life. The psychological novel is not an indigenous Russian growth. Its pedigree goes back to the 17th and 18th century, to the novels of Madame de Lafayette, to Samuel Richardson, and to the Confessions of Rousseau. In the first half of the 19th century, the French tradition was carried on by Benjamin Constant and reached its fullest expression in the towering genius of Stendhal. In Russia, Lermontov is closely connected with this French tradition. Aksakov, on the other hand, with his manner at once broad and detailed, stands apart from the main current, but is related by way of the sentimental training he received from his mother with the older tradition of the 18th century. Tolstoy is a direct successor of the French analysts. He acknowledges his debt to Rousseau and Stendhal, but he carried their method further and to greater perfection. Dostoevsky's kinship is much less clear. His direct master in the art of fiction was Balzac, and to a lesser extent Gogol and Dickens, neither of whom was a psychologist. His psychology was largely his own creation, one of the genuinely original novelties in the history of literature. In Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, and in Sandal, the psychological novel of the 19th century reaches its high watermark. Their pupils did not rise to their level. Only within the last years have we seen another novelist of comparable psychological power and equal originality, the great and perverse Frenchman Marcel Proust. 
Though Tolstoy was the first to gain general recognition, and his influence began to spread earlier than Dostoevsky's, we have only to compare their dates to see that priority in time belongs to Dostoevsky, and that consequently it is right to begin with him, though in the history of literary taste he may come second. Dostoevsky was seven years older than Tolstoy. His novels were published from 1846 to 1880, Tolstoy's from 1852 to 1911, Murat. Tolstoy's moral and social propaganda begins where Dostoevsky's finishes. The dates are respectively 1861 to 1881 and 1882 to 1910. Theodore Mihailovich Dostoevsky was born on 30th October 1821 in Moscow, where his father was a doctor in one of the big municipal hospitals. They were fairly well off, and when Dostoevsky was nine, his father bought a small property and thus became a land and serf owner. But for all that, the family was plebeian, and Dostoevsky felt the social difference separating him from Turgenev or Tolstoy. In 1838 he was sent, together with his elder brother Michael, to the military engineer's school in St. Petersburg. He obtained his commission in 1841, but in 1844 he left the service. He came under the influence of the westernizing radicals, and, like them, passionately admired Georges Sand and Fourier, and Gogol as interpreted by Bilinsky. His faith was in socialism and humanitarianism, or, as it was then called, philanthropy. He was an indefatigable reader, and he early began to write. By the end of 1845 he had completed Poor Folk, a novel in the style of Gogol, and intensely philanthropic in feeling. When Belinsky and Nikrasov read the manuscript, they declared that, quote, a new Gogol was born to us, end quote. The success was immediate, and Dostoevsky sprang into sudden fame. But there were more things in Dostoevsky than were dreamt of in the philosophy of Belinsky, and after his first dazzling success, there began a period of misunderstanding between the novelist and his critics. Dostoevsky was groping for themes and new ways of expression, and he was by no means inclined to write to the dictation of Belinsky. His second novel, The Double, disappointed the critics and met with derision. It is a most powerful production, combining the elaborate verbal art of Gogol with a hitherto unheard of depth and detail of analysis. It described a mental state verging on and developing into insanity. It is a poem in prose. The subheading is a poem of Petersburg, and at the same time a clinical study. Dostoevsky's great sensitiveness and self-consciousness, so curiously akin to that of his hero, was cruelly wounded and exasperated by the reception of his new masterpiece by critics who had just exalted to the clouds a less perfect work, and he quarreled with his literary friends of the moment. He continued writing tale after tale. They all met with coldness or irony. 
It is true that he had not yet quite found himself, and it was not easy to seize the general trend of these unusual and startling stories. Besides, except the double, which, judged by its own standards, is a masterpiece, all the work of this period is distinctly immature, untidy, and formless. But it included such powerful productions as The Landlady, with its passionate romance, and Nyetochka Nizvanova, an unfinished and rough torso of immense significance, almost foreshadowing the great depths of Dostoevsky's subsequent psychological adventures. Meanwhile, he had become a member of the socialist circle of Petrashevsky. These socialists were very peacefully disposed and distinctly hostile to all quote-unquote bourgeois radicalism. At first they were viewed with toleration by the government. But then came 1848. Nicholas I was alarmed by the revolution, and a period of extreme reaction began which lasted to the end of his reign. All the members and friends of the Petrashevsky circle, including Dostoevsky, were arrested. Most of them, after a prolonged court-martial, were sentenced to death. On 21st December 1849, they were brought to the scaffold, went through all the preparations made for the execution, and only at the last moment their reprieve was announced to them. Dostoevsky's sentence was commuted to four years of hard labor in Siberia. He served it in the convict prison of Omsk, so memorably described by him in the House of Death. This terrible ordeal did not embitter Dostoevsky, nor did it break him. It was to him a purgatory from which he emerged morally fortified and purified. But his nervous system was severely shattered, and the fits of epilepsy he was subject to became more frequent. In 1854, his term of hard labor ended, and he was transferred to Semipalatinsk, where he was to serve at first as a private soldier. In 1855, his commission was restored to him, and before long he was allowed to leave the service, but he lived in Siberia for over nine years, and it was only in 1859 that he was finally pardoned. In the years following his return to civilized life, Dostoevsky wrote Memoirs from the House of Death, a work embodying his experience of convict life. It won him general admiration, and was during his life always regarded as his principal claim to immortality. About the same time he wrote two more novels. One is Stepanchikova and its inhabitants, in the English translation A Friend of the Family, a subtle and elaborate study of a bully who rules those around him by the method of taking offense at everything. It is also interesting as the first example of the dramatic construction so typical of Dostoevsky's great novels. The other novel is The Oppressed and Insulted, probably the least good of all his books. It is written under the obvious influence of Dickens, and there is plenty of Dickens's sentimentality in it, but none of his humor. In 1861, Dostoevsky together with his brother, Michael, started a monthly magazine, The Times, Vreme, 
Its program was a sort of democratic Slavophilism, akin to that of Grigoriev, who became one of its principal contributors. The magazine met with considerable success, but in 1863 it was suppressed by the censorship, owing, it soon turned out, to a misunderstanding. The magazine was resumed in 1864 under a new name, the Epoch, but the suppression had involved the Dostoevskys in difficulties, and the Epoch could not attain the sale of its predecessor. Michael Dostoevsky died, and by the beginning of 1865 it was realized that the journal was a complete failure. Dostoevsky entered on a period of pecuniary difficulties, oppressed by debts and the necessity of helping his brother's family. These difficulties were increased by his gambling away all he had in Wiesbaden. For several years Dostoevsky was under the constant stress of these difficulties. For a time he even lived abroad for fear of his Russian creditors. In 1866 he married his secretary, and this proved his salvation. His wife turned out to be a very efficient housekeeper, and by 1871, with the aid of his literary earnings, he was extricated from his debts. The period of these difficulties was also the period of his greatest literary activity. Memoirs from the Underground was published in 1864, Crime and Punishment in 1866, The Idiot in 1869, and The Possessed in 1871. Some of these novels, especially The Idiot, were written under the immediate stress of need. They came out as serials in the big magazines, the first chapters often appearing before the following chapters were written. A great inner change had come over Dostoevsky. The memoirs from Underground is the starting point of that Dostoevsky whom we know, the intrepid investigator of the innermost recesses and most hidden lurking places of the human soul. He must have gone through a tragic crisis before he wrote this and the great novels that followed it. But we have no biographical knowledge on this point. It has evidently no connection with his death sentence and imprisonment, or with his later money difficulties. Its origin must have been internal, but it may have been connected in some way with his epilepsy. These novels of Dostoevsky attracted considerable attention, but aroused but little admiration. The time was one of fierce party strife. Dostoevsky belonged to no party, but the radicals considered him a reactionary and judged him accordingly. The judgments of the critics and reviewers of the time are often ludicrously inadequate. Crime and punishment was condemned by a radical critic on the ground that it might favor the opinion that all students were murderers and thieves like Raskolnikov. The possessed, with its violent satire of the nihilists, aroused a veritable storm of indignation. In 1873, Dostoevsky became editor of The Citizen, a conservative paper, thus identifying himself more closely with the right. He began publishing weekly his Diary of a Writer, and his influence as a journalist began to grow. 
In this diary, he weakly expounded his teaching in a rather turgid and inelegant prose, which lacks the all-pervading creative breath of his novels. His doctrine was, as before, a democratic Slavophilism, a profound belief that the Russian people, with a big P, and mainly meaning the peasants, was a Narod Baganosets, a God-bearing people. His democracy was ecstatically Christian and anti-revolutionary, and one of his tenets was the necessity of annexing Constantinople. But Dostoevsky was no vulgar pan-Slavist or imperialist. Constantinople was to him the symbol of Russia's universal Christian mission, which was to reconcile in one supreme harmony all the nations of the world. Dostoevsky's greatest triumph during his lifetime, and at the same time the fullest and most brilliant assertion of his national doctrine, was the address he delivered in 1880 on the unveiling of the Pushkin Memorial in Moscow. Pushkin, said Dostoevsky, was Russia's all in all, Nasha Vsyo, for the very reason that he was a cosmopolitan, or, as Dostoevsky put it, an all-man, Vsyochilavik. This pan-humanity is the national characteristic of Russia, and Russia's mission is to effect the final synthesis of all mankind. In the same year was published what is probably his greatest work, The Brothers Karamazov, though it produced at first a less powerful effect than the Pushkin address. In the next year, 30th January 1881, he died. His funeral was a striking manifestation of his wide popularity. The number of mourners was unprecedented. But it was the author of The House of Death, the great humanitarian and the political martyr of 1849, who was being buried. The general attitude of the critics towards Dostoevsky at the moment of his death may be well typified in the poet Slushevsky's appreciation of him. Quote, he may or may not have been a great imaginative writer, but there can be no doubt that he was a great Christian and a great humanitarian. End quote. Today, most of us would rather reverse the judgment. It took some time for Dostoevsky to come to his own. The best critical appreciation of his work before his death was Mihailovsky's essay, A Cruel Talent. But though brilliantly penetrating, it is invective rather than criticism. The turn of the tide is marked by the date 1888, when appeared Andreevsky's article on the brothers Karamazov, and Rozanov's book on The Legend of the Great Inquisitor. In both of them, Dostoevsky was implicitly recognized as a towering genius. Since then, his position has become very high and his influence ubiquitous. All the great essayists of about 1900 were mainly commentators of Dostoevsky. His fame has equaled and surpassed Tolstoy's both at home and abroad, and though there have been unhealthy exaggerations in the Dostoevsky mania, his place as one of the two greatest, most of us would now say the second greatest, Russian writers of the second half of the 19th century is sufficiently safe. 
Although his novels are much more read than his non-imaginative writings, he is usually regarded as a writer who is interesting mainly for his ideas, not for his artistic achievement. Mr. Middleton Murray, in his book, which is the most notable English contribution to the study of Dostoevsky, simply refuses to discuss him as a novelist and discusses him only as a generator and handler of ideas. The sentiment of every true Dostoevskian is that there are many good novelists, but only one Dostoevsky. There is a good deal of exaggeration in this attitude. A novel is a novel for all that and must be treated as such. But there is also a justification for the non-novelist view, for Dostoevsky's novels are indeed romances, or rather tragedies, of ideas. It has been well said of him that he, quote-unquote, felt ideas, as we feel frost or heat, hunger or thirst. They were to him potent realities which pulled the strings of all human actions. Ideas are the real heroes of his novels. But his ideas are so strongly individualized, so vividly tangible, and so organically complex that they cease to be mere abstractions and become living beings. They are widely remote from the ideas of Plato. They are dynamic ideas, what the French call idées forces. Very few men before or after Dostoevsky had the same dynamic sensitiveness to ideas. St. Paul, St. Augustine, Pascal, Nietzsche, these are the spiritual kin of Dostoevsky. The ideas among which he moved, or rather by which he was obsessed, are the essential ideas of God and of good and evil, and the crucial question to him was, how is it possible to reconcile individual suffering and individual evil with the supreme goodness and perfection of God? How can this suffering and that evil be dissolved into eternal harmony? How can universal harmony make up for the undeserved suffering of a tortured child, which has been, and whatever may happen cannot cease to have been? In short, the crucial question of Theodicea of how to, quote, justify the ways of God to man, and quote, the stumbling block which can never be removed of all religious philosophy. Ostensibly, Dostoevsky was on the side of God, but his religion was entirely irrational and based entirely on a passionate ecstatic devotion to the person of Christ. If Christ is not all truth, he writes when yet in Siberia, I prefer to be with Christ against truth than with truth against Christ. Quote. On the logical plane, he could never overcome the antinomies of moral reasoning. All his preaching is Christian, but he was only too well aware of what the other side has to say, and in the arguments of the man from underground, of Kirillov, and especially of Ivan Karamazov, there is more than can be answered from the point of view of Dostoevsky's Christianity. 
What makes the position of all these Dostoevskian devil's advocates so strong is that they impeach the divine order through the point of view of the highest morality. On the surface of things, to the superficial reader and thinker, as to the well-intentioned man in self-made blinkers, Dostoevsky is the greatest of Christian teachers, the prophet of a great Christian revival. But whether this is so, and whether Dostoevsky's innermost essence was Christian, is a very doubtful point. There were terrible abysses of evil in the soul of the man who wrote The Underground and created Stavrogin. These abysses open at his feet in the moments of his highest creative tension. And there are indications that he had a greater personal experience of evil than is usually believed. Even in his saints, in Prince Mishkin and in Alyosha Karamazov, there are abysses and flashes of a terrible understanding and sympathy with evil. The quote-unquote prophetic interpretation of Dostoevsky is the most current. But there are people who see deeper. The first of these was Mikhailovsky, who used his insight mainly as a weapon against a reactionary author. But the greatest of modern Dostoevskians, Leo Shestov, is also one of the devil's advocates. Whatever may be the importance and vitality of Dostoevsky's ideas, he was first of all a novelist. His heroes are not impersonations or abstractions of ideas. They are living human beings agitated by conflicting forces. They are living beings, so much is certain. But are they human beings? At any rate, they do not belong to the humanity we belong to. They belong to a world created by Dostoevsky himself, as Gogol and Dickens created theirs. To believe that Dostoevsky's novels are a faithful mirror held up to any section, be it ever so particular, of the Russian intelligentsia, reveals either a lack of information or a hopeless absence of any sense of reality. His novels are essentially tragedy, and tragedy works in conventions and exaggerations. It would be as reasonable to believe that Elizabethan society consisted of Tamburlaines and Vittoria Corombonas, or Athenian society of Medeas and Clytemnestras, as to imagine the Russian intelligentsia of the age of Alexander II, as so many Stavrogins and Verhovenskys. Dostoevsky used certain conventions of realism for his tragedies, and used them with consummate skill. His colloquial Russian, for instance, is a masterpiece of vivid characterization. But he used them to give flesh and blood to utterly unrealistic conceptions. This does not mean that these conceptions are utterly unreal, unreal in the sense of everyday reality. They possess a reality of their own, for they are symbolic. Dostoevsky's people have consequently an enormous convincingness. You are driven to believe in them in defiance of all common sense, and they are as real in the artistic sense as the scrupulously true characters of Tolstoy. Even more so, 
for their vitality is more than human. They are giants too big to walk this earth. The portrait gallery of Dostoevsky must be familiar to everyone. Its heroes and titans are easily classified according to the meaning of the myths they embody. There are the rebels against the moral order of the universe, the passive questionnaire Ivan Karamazov, the quote-unquote pure Superman Kirillov, the moral adventurer Raskolnikov, then the pure agents of evil, the disciples of the great logician, the devil, Smerdyakov and Verhovensky, tools of lust like the old Karamazov and Svidrigailov, holy youths inspired with pan-human sympathy, Alosha Karamazov and Prince Mushkin, whose very breath is charity and holiness, and yet they have such strange inner revelations of evil. Tormented victims of passion, like Rogozhin and Dmitri Karamazov, and most terrible of all his men, the bored Stavrogin, with his purely intellectual curiosity in lust and evil, and his complete inner vacuum. And those wonderful women, the most wonderful women of all tragical poetry, in whom the pure tragic essence of Dostoevsky is most concentrated, the demoniac, proud and wretched Nastasia Filipovna and Grushenka, truly a wonderful universe with more pure creation in it than any other world except the one we live in. Unlike most of his contemporaries, Dostoevsky did not neglect plot, and though in most of his novels it is confused and intricate, in Crime and Punishment he achieved a masterpiece of construction. The narrative, or rather dramatic interest, of his novels never flags. His most potent method in achieving this constant tension of interest is his mastery in dialogue. Dostoevsky's novels contain more dialogue than anything else. In fact, all the rest is no more important than stage directions are in a play. It has been found very easy to turn his novels into plays without adding a single word. The dialogue is marvelously individualized. In the Russian original, you recognize every character by the peculiar intonations and rhythms of his speech as easily as you recognize the voice of a friend. It is difficult to lay one's hand on the processes by which the novelist arrives at the effect. The dialogue is kept up at a high pitch of emotional tension, which communicates itself to the reader, making it impossible for him to lay down the book before he has finished it. To read a novel of Dostoevsky's is something of an adventure. To embark on it is to become his slave for the time it takes one to master his 300,000 words. Dostoevsky's novels are very long, but hardly too long, so charged is all the dialogue with emotional and psychological significance. The contrast is strong between the dialogue and the narrative part. His narrative prose, like his journalism, is slovenly, unkempt journalese. His dialogue is a marvel of effectiveness. 
This makes those of his works which are written in monologue, the hero all the time speaking in the first person, his most uniformly perfect work. Such are some minor sketches inserted in the diary of a writer. Such, most of all, are the memoirs from underground, which are perhaps the quintessence of his genius. Here the tension of interest is reached exclusively by psychological means, without the help of narrative interest. It is the triumph of his analytical power and his greatest claim to the title of a cruel genius. To contrast Tolstoy with Dostoevsky has been a favorite subject on which many writers have enlarged, and no one better than Mereshkovsky in his well-known and very good book on these two great authors. Their lives form a striking contrast. Unlike the plebeian Dostoevsky, Count Tolstoy was born of one of the best families in the country and lived a long life of affluence and success, which, but for his inner struggles, would have also been a life of almost cloudless happiness. He was blessed with a wife of rare virtue and devotion, who bore him numerous children. He augmented his fortune both by efficient farming and by success in literature, and attained a worldwide celebrity which has been equaled in modern times only by great conquerors or successful leaders of revolutions. Napoleon, Garibaldi, and Lenin are the only men within the last hundred and odd years whose fame during their lifetime was equal to or greater than that of Tolstoy. Count Leo Nikolaevich Tolstoy was born at Yasnaya Polana, governorate of Tula, on 28th August 1828. Nicolas Rostov equals Tolstoy, and Marie Volkonsky, equals Volkonsky, of War and Peace, are roughly his father and mother. His education was strictly aristocratic, and he did not come in touch with the intellectuals before he went to the university. There, and in subsequent life, he never mixed with them. In all his books, the quote-unquote peasant and peer standpoint is consistently maintained. The middle classes are absent from them. Of all the great writers of his generation, he was, with the exception of Fett, the least a man of letters. He was just a gentleman. His idiosyncrasies prevented him from being a man of the world, but he was most himself when, after his marriage, he spent eighteen years on his estates, farming, rearing cattle, and providing for the future welfare of his numerous children, seeing but a few relations and friends of his own class, much interested in his peasants, and writing long epics about noble families. He was a whimsical and somewhat uncouth country gentleman, but for all that a country gentleman to his fingertips. The interests of the literary profession did not exist for him, and he had no friends in the literary world. His quarrel with Turgenev is notorious, except Fett, who was primarily a country neighbor, and Strachov, who had a turn of thought in tune with Tolstoy's, and was for a long time the only critic to do anything like justice to his novels. 
when, after his quote-unquote conversion, Tolstoy cast aside all his earthly interests, he still did not become a littérateur or a journalist. He became a prophet, something much more like Buddha than like Voltaire or Rousseau. The patriarchal and intensely aristocratic figure of Tolstoy is in violent contrast to the general plebeian groundwork of Russian literary life from Belinsky and Turgenev to our own times. It is one of the principal elements of his unique position, and must not be lost sight of. It developed in him that proud individualism, which is so curiously inconsistent with his anti-individual yearnings. It was nature, of course, that made him great. But the full development of his gigantic nature was favored by his wealth and high social standing. The greatness of Tolstoy, like the greatness of Job, is primarily a moral greatness. But this moral greatness found favorable conditions for its development in the social and economic independence of those two rich men. In the greatness of Tolstoy, as in that of Job, there is an element which is identical with the greatness of a patriarch like Laban or like Aksakov's Stepan Mikhailovich Bagarov. But to return to the facts of Tolstoy's life. In 1848 he went down from Kazan University without taking a degree, and intended to settle at his now famous estate of Yasnaya Polana and to engage in farming. But this at the time proved a failure, and after a period of rather wild life at Moscow, he joined the army as an ensign and went to the Caucasus, where a long-drawn-out war was being waged against the mountaineers. Before he had been long in the army, he completed his first story, Childhood, and sent it to Nekrasov, the editor of the most influential magazine of the day, Nikrasov received it with enthusiasm, and it was immediately printed over the signature L.T., 1852. Tolstoy had early begun writing diaries and the like, in which he had exercised and refined his innate genius for psychological analysis and the observation of minute facts of the inner life. He was and always remained an ardent admirer of Rousseau, in childhood, this kinship with Rousseau is very apparent. Equally apparent is a highly developed power of analysis. The story is a masterpiece which remained unsurpassed by the author for many years. In childhood, and in its sequel, Boyhood, but to a much lesser extent in Youth, he displayed already that wonderful power of creating the illusion of absolute truth, of absolute fidelity to life, which marks him off from all, even the greatest. It gives an impression of transcending art, of not only representing, but being life. It is easy to understand that it created a sensation and gave the impression that a new power was entering literature, but this sensation was at first limited to the inner circles of literature. Even after War and Peace, Tolstoy's fame was largely confined to those inner circles and to the upper classes of whose life he had drawn such an attractive picture. It did not become universal till later. 
but childhood was not followed up by masterpieces of superior or even equal quality. The next years were a period of transition. In the stories written between 1852 to 1862, he is not the same supreme master of psychological realism, for he was learning, and partly under the influence of Stendhal, deepening and perfecting his methods of analysis. Personal experience had also given an edge to his analytical powers, for there are no more powerful revealers of natural man than war and its following, discomfort and danger. Fear is a great, quote-unquote, developer. It is precisely in the treatment of fear that Tolstoy achieves his first triumphs in analysis. As a consequence, the works of this period, of which the Sebastopol sketches may be taken as typical, are somewhat misshapen. They are exercises in analysis rather than works of art. These exercises enhanced his power of expression, but they had to be mellowed before it attained to its full maturity. In these early stories, Tolstoy is already a preacher. He preaches a gospel of return to nature and of trust in the quote-unquote natural man, a developed form of the teachings of Rousseau. In Tolstoy's case, it had been largely favored by intercourse with quote-unquote primitive types of Cossacks and mountaineers in the Caucasus. In a series of stories written after 1855, Tolstoy is still a preacher. Owing to his immaturity, these stories with a purpose are often more openly didactic than those he wrote after his conversion. Such, for instance, are Lucerne and Three Deaths. This was only a transient stage. He was working hard and striving after more perfect forms of expression. The stories that mark the end of this period are again works of conscious and mature art. In The Cossacks, 1853-1861, he finds an adequate expression for his ideal of the natural man in the primitive Cossacks of the Terek, especially in the heathen and pantheist huntsman Uncle Yeroshka. In Holstomer, The History of a Horse, 1861, he goes one better and applies his perfected methods of analysis to the feelings of a dumb animal. Holstomer thus marks the farthest limit both in his endeavor to reach unadulterated quote-unquote nature and in the audacious expansion of his analytical methods over new and untrodden fields. After serving for two years on the Caucasian front, Tolstoy volunteered in 1854 to join the garrison of Sebastopol, and from there sent his three famous sketches, which were published before the siege had ended, and so had all the interest of actuality. They produced a profound impression by their daring analysis and consciously unromantic representation of the great romantic stock subject, war. After the war, Tolstoy came to St. Petersburg, he was received as an equal by the greatest writers of the day, but though by no means insensitive to popularity, 
he disliked the atmosphere of literary St. Petersburg. He left the army, traveled abroad, and settled in Jasnaya Polana. There he took to the education of village children, and startled and scandalized his liberal and progressive contemporaries by declaring that the peasants had nothing to learn from, quote-unquote, us, but, on the contrary, it was, quote-unquote, we who had to learn from the village children. In 1861, he fell in love with Sophie Bers. At first, he was sure that being old, 34, and ugly, he had no chance of being loved by her, and, under this impression, wrote Family Happiness, the least remarkable of all his imaginative works. But in 1862, he married her and settled down to the quiet and prosperous family life of a rich country gentleman. This life continued till the beginning of his religious crisis. It saw the making of his greatest works, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, his Iliad and Odyssey. Although for Russians the work of Pushkin is a more essential and indispensable fact of national civilization, it is probable that to the world at large these two novels are Russia's most important contribution to literature. They have been pronounced to be the greatest novels in the world, and whether this be true or not, they certainly occupy a unique place among the world's novels. That which distinguishes them from the rest is not a question of degree or quantity, but a question of presence and absence. If this peculiar Tolstoyan quality be taken as a standard of excellence, the other novelists are simply equal in their inferiority, they have not a grain of it. It is the peculiar power of creating men and women who have a convincing roundness and a vividness which makes us classify them with real men and women. In Tolstoy's characters, the absolutely universal is combined with absolutely unique features in such a way that they are at once recognized not as types nor as creations of an imagination, but as individuals, with no more symbolism in them than is inherent in every one of us. This effect is, of course, based on analysis, which Tolstoy learned from his French masters, and perhaps from Lermontov. But in Stendhal and Lermontov, the elements of personality remain distinct and separate, and analysis does not result in synthesis. It is significant that the only two great writers who have in any degree the same quality were also Frenchmen, the Duke of Saint-Simon and Marcel Proust. But the genius of Saint-Simon was unconscious and is not accompanied by the light of analysis, for analysis was still to be discovered. As for Marcel Proust, though he gives his people absolute reality and personality, he does not give to his figures that solidity which Tolstoy gives to his. Proust's figures are animated nebulae. Tolstoy's have the toughness of human beings. It is superfluous to give any detailed account of these two novels, for everyone who has heard of the existence of such a thing as Russian literature is presumed to have read them. 
as works of art, apart from that power which is peculiar to Tolstoy, they may be easily found wanting. But it is doubtful whether a more condensed and crisp narrative would not have been out of place. The spacious, loose, easy form of a family chronicle, dealing at once with several families and several plots that have little or nothing in common, is decidedly the best form for the manifestation of his peculiar genius, the best way of giving to the absolutely real characters an absolutely real frame to move in. This form of the two novels, which are quote-unquote slices of life rather than connected narratives, must be justified as necessary for that supreme effect of life itself which they produce upon us. The effect of absolute realism is enhanced by the fact that Tolstoy chose and limited himself to the class he knew so well and to which he belonged, the uppermost stratum of the Russian nobility. The life of the Russian upper classes between 1805 and 1820 and about 1875 is not represented, it is recreated. It seems to live forever not by the medium of art, but by some mysterious process of vital continuity. It has been pointed out that war and peace is historically insufficient. The Napoleonic generation were not capable of reducing to articulate speech the exceedingly elusive feelings Tolstoy deals in. Natasha is an anachronism. It may be so, and we may agree that it is not a picture of the time as it was, but of the time as it would have been if peopled by men and women of a later mentality. This is a venial offense, if an offense at all. A more serious offense is the constant intrusion of the rationalizing and moralizing Count Tolstoy into this universe of his creation. In Anna Karenina, this didactic element is so finely concealed that it does not strike the reader until he has grasped the whole moral hinted at in the motto. But it permeates the texture of the novel more thoroughly than in War and Peace. Anna Karenina is from this point of view a cunningly written novel with a purpose. In War and Peace, the main texture is quite free from this disingenuous preoccupation. This makes the first two parts of the novel the most agreeable reading in the whole of Tolstoy. But it contains a certain proportion, which grows as the novel advances, of purely rationalizing chapters written to demonstrate the ineffectiveness of personality and the smallness of great men. Some of these chapters may be simply left out. But others, all those dealing with Napoleon, Kutuzov, and the symbolic peasant Platon Karataev, who is the incarnation of the unconscious wisdom of the masses, are closely woven into the texture of the story and cannot be taken away from it without destroying the architecture of the whole. Tolstoy's philosophy at this time best expressed in War and Peace, and somewhat less distinctly in Anna Karenina, is a philosophy of complete submission to life and to the subconscious wisdom of the race. It subordinates reason to the irrational, 
but Tolstoy, greatest of rationalists, who has carried the light of analysis into the deepest recesses of the animal spirit, could not remain satisfied with such an irrational solution. He felt the necessity of finding a rational explanation of life. The horror of inevitable death must be rationally justified. At the time of the completion of Anna Karenina, the initial energy of his family happiness was spent, and the approaching age of fifty made the shadow of death an ever more menacing reality. In the years that followed the completion of Anna Karenina, Tolstoy underwent a crisis which, after a period of almost hopeless despair, led him to adopt a philosophy which has come to be known as Tolstoyism, and the propaganda of which filled the last thirty years of his life. It is not my task here to describe the genesis or the essence of Tolstoyism. Its essential characteristics are familiar to every educated and semi-educated European, American and Asiatic. It identified itself with Christianity, but of all the teaching of Christ it took thou shalt not oppose evil with violence as the central point. It was in fact a purely negative doctrine, more akin to Buddhism than to Christianity. It involved, among other things, the negation of all modern civilization as tending to increase the inequality of men. It is profoundly rationalistic. It rejects for purely rationalistic motives the doctrine of future life and all the sacramental teaching of the Church. But, like all rationalism, it was doomed to leave an unexplained residue. Tolstoy was aware of this residue, but he did his utmost to keep his eyes away from it. His rationalism went, quote, thus far and no farther, end quote. Under its surface there remained the irrational man. He had been well bridled, and there is scarcely a trace of him in most of Tolstoy's writing after 1880. But he is unmistakably present in the fragment called Memoirs of a Madman, and we catch more than one glimpse of him in the wonderful reminiscences of Gorky. Tolstoy's teaching, for reasons which it would be out of place to discuss here, attained enormous popularity, and in a few years he became the best-known writer in the world, and Jasnaya Palana, the mecca of a new cult. Tolstoy's obvious greatness was so great that the Russian government, who had little to like in his activities, left him unmolested and never so much as touched a hair of his head. It contented itself with pursuing his less illustrious followers. Footnote. The excommunication of Tolstoy by the Holy Senate in 1902 was a perfectly justifiable and abundantly provoked act. It did not, as is often imagined, lay a curse on him, but merely registered the fact that he had separated himself from the church, a fact he had explicitly recognized more than once. And a footnote. After his conversion, his literary activity did not cease, nor did it, on the whole, lose in quality but it assumed a very different character. 
becoming a consistent and rigidly thought-out propaganda of his new doctrines. The new period of Tolstoy's literary work opens with the Confession, written in 1879 and published in 1882. It is certainly one of the most remarkable books ever written, but it displays qualities of a radically different kind from those we find in War and Peace and Anna Karenina. It is a perfectly tempered weapon meant to fight with, not a disinterested reproduction of life. It is written with passion and a power that has no equal, and with a lucidity and distinctness of outline which we hardly expect from the author of War and Peace. Its sincerity is deeply convincing, though it is quite obvious that Tolstoy's sincerity is not what we call by that name in our daily life. It is a fully self-conscious and disciplined sincerity, a sincerity of, quote, thus far and no farther, end quote. Tolstoy's conscious art and artistic mastery is nowhere more intense and perfect than in his Confession. The work which announces his apostasy from art is his most perfect artistic creation. For force of expression, there is nothing equal to the first negative part of the confession, containing the story of the crisis that led to his quote-unquote conversion. Its nearest relation in literature is Ecclesiastes, but I venture to think that the Russian book is even superior to the Jewish. If the end, the positive part, the conversion itself, may come to some readers as a sort of anti-climax, this is due to the lesser value of the ideas expressed, not to the quality of the literary art, which is sustained to the end. In his other didactic writings, written after 1882, Tolstoy shows the same qualities of lucidity, clarity, consistency, powerful logic, excellently tempered irony. But none of them contain so much passion and energy, the most remarkable of these writings is What is Art? It is well known to the English reader, and, in spite of its narrow perversity, contains more wise and witty things on art than any other book on the subject. What is most admirable in all Tolstoy's didactic and moral tracts is his language, which is very largely a creation of his own. It is entirely free from all bookish and quote-unquote intellectual influence. It is exclusively based on the spoken language of the society he belonged to, and at the same time it is admirably adapted for the treatment of abstract and philosophical questions. No writer has written on such subjects in a more lucid, simple, and universal way. His phrase is long and complex, but mathematically exact in its structure. In fact, Tolstoy is the writer who has best succeeded in making the Russian language a vehicle of abstract thought, but his abstractness always tends towards the concrete and the visual, and one of his favorite and happiest methods is the parable, which he uses with supreme skill and nowhere with more effect than in the well-known passages of the Confession, where he concentrates round parables all the principal emotional effects of his sermon. 
After his conversion, Tolstoy condemned all his previous imaginative writings, but he did not condemn himself to producing no more. He wrote a quantity of plays, which are discussed in the following chapter, and stories. These stories do not possess the charm of War and Peace. Only a few passages from Resurrection, 1899, The Youth of Katusha Maslova, and Haji Murat, written in 1903, published 1911, have the particular flavor his readers had grown accustomed to. But as his work lost the free, unfettered charm of War and Peace and Anna Karenina, it acquired other qualities which are also of a high artistic order, qualities of economy, construction, and concentration. The didactic and philosophical stories of this period are on the whole superior to the quote-unquote tendentious stories of his youth, like Lucerne or Three Deaths. These stories are of two kinds, stories written for the educated reader and stories intended for the quote-unquote people. In the former, Tolstoy continues his method of detailed description and minute analysis, but he gives it a new edge and concentrates his forces more decidedly towards a distinct end. The first of these is the death of Ivan Ilyich, 1882, a counterpart to Confession, a piece of extraordinarily penetrating analysis, and unlike his earlier works, of powerful synthesis, constructed, like Confession, with the supreme art which may be qualified as musical or lyrical. It was followed by the Kreutzer Sonata, 1888, Master and Man, 1895, Resurrection, 1899, Haji Murat, The Devil, and Father Sergius. Of these, Haji Murat alone is a disinterested story of Caucasian romance, the others are all written with a purpose. Resurrection, which was meant to be the great imaginative synthesis of Tolstoyism, is very imperfect. Nowhere is the essential aridity of the doctrine more obvious. It contains numerous passages comparable to his great novels, but as a whole it is a failure. The other stories are problem stories, concentrated round distinct philosophical problems, the meaning of mortal life, Ivan Ilyich, moral duty, master and man, the desires of the flesh, Kreutzer Sonata, the devil, Father Sergius. They are unequal in merit. The first two are masterpieces, and Ivan Ilyich especially is a work of infinite and universal significance. The confession translated from the language of Ecclesiastes into that of Anna Karenina. The stories written for the people reject all the paraphernalia of the realistic novel, descriptive detail, and emotional analysis. They acquire a classical neatness of outline, a reticence, and a conciseness, which Tolstoy towards the end of his life valued above all artistic qualities. This change of artistic standards explains his later dislike for War and Peace and Anna Karenina. He chose for his model the stories of the book of Genesis. He held the story of Joseph to be the best thing in all narrative literature. 
His stories for the quote-unquote people are admirable for these qualities, which again could hardly be suspected in the Tolstoy one knew before 1880. Many of these stories are universally familiar. They are essentially parables. Most of them are very short, and all of them are packed with narrative interest. Among the longer and more elaborate ones, the false coupon is as delightful a piece of narrative as there is in Russian literature. So, after all, in his last period Tolstoy did not bury his talent, he only directed it towards new ways. From a literary point of view, his last period is a period of classical style, of selection, self-limitation and outline, as opposed to the preceding period of naturalism, of comprehensive inclusion, of expansion and atmosphere. Meanwhile, Tolstoy continued living in Yasnaya, at his house in Moscow or in the Crimea, surrounded by the devoted attention of his wife and family, and the admiring importunity of pilgrims from all parts of the world. A group of fervent Tolstoyans, chief among whom was the ex-horse guardsman V. G. Chertkov, began to play an ever-increasing part in his life. The contradiction between his ascetic doctrine and the comfortable life at Yasnaya gradually came to weigh heavily on Tolstoy. He had renounced all his possessions, but they had passed to his wife, who had no wish to leave her numerous children unprovided for. Tolstoy's house gradually became the field of a permanent war between Countess Tolstoy and Chertkov. Life at Yasnaya became a hell. Tolstoy more and more began to feel the incongruity of his position at home, and finally decided to leave it. At the end of October 1910, he left his house in the company of his doctor and his daughter Alexandra, the only one of his children who had adopted his doctrines. He first went to see his sister, who was a nun at a convent near Optina. Then he traveled farther without any destination. The state of his health forced him to stop at Astapovo Junction, governorate of Rezany. There, in the station master's house, he died on the 9th November 1910. He was buried at Yasnaya. There was an enormous attendance at the burial, but over his grave no Christian prayers were said. End of section 3